This is the Borders of Equality podcast, a podcast about immigration and political economy made at Leiden University. I am Alex Afonso, and in this episode, Emily Wolf, Sammy Nagash, and I welcome Valentina Distasio to talk about ethnic discrimination on the labor market. Surveys in different countries seem to show that attitudes towards immigrants and ethnic minorities have become more positive over time. But are these attitudes in surveys reflected in actual practices, or are people just more aware of which opinions are acceptable in society? The problem is that practices are difficult to measure. One type of practice that has been studied in the labor market for a long time are hiring practices. Are candidates from ethnic minorities or with an immigrant background less likely to be invited for a job interview? Valentina Distasio is an assistant professor at Utrecht University. She has been affiliated to the University of Oxford, the Social Science Research Center in Berlin and the University of Amsterdam. Valentina is a sociologist who has worked extensively on the role of employers in hiring decisions, education and skills, and on ethnic discrimination on the labor market, which is the focus of our discussion today. She's the author of a number of articles on ethnic discrimination in European countries, notably a review of experiments conducted in Britain since the 1960s, published in the British Journal of Sociology. So Valentina, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, so you've done a lot of research on uh, labor market uh, discrimination. Um, could you maybe explain what is labor market uh, discrimination? Because I think when people think about discrimination, they might have different phenomena and different things in mind. When do we know that there's actually labor market discrimination going on? Yeah, where do I start? <laughs> yeah, um, so basically, um, in I would give a definition of labor market discrimination that is also consistent with my sociological background. Um, so I would call discrimination in the labor market um, an episode of um, differential treatment that happens on the basis of a characteristic that is um, a protected characteristic. This could be a gender, it could be ethnicity, it could be a race, it could be religion, sexual orientation, for example. Um, it is a it is a different treatment that cannot be justified based on characteristics that are considered to be relevant for, say, um, a given job. So you can imagine, for example, an employer that uh, has to decide between two applicants. These two applicants are um, equal with regard to a whole set of characteristics that are important to perform the job. But then one uh, candidate is from a minority background and the other one is from a majority background and uh, the choice um, the, the employer chooses one over the other. So um, the only uh, difference between the two candidates is, in this case, the, uh, the background. So this could be, um, um, this is, this is uh, what I would consider evidence of uh, preferential treatment that cannot be justified based on productivity-relevant characteristics. Um, it is also important in this definition to keep in mind that the employers need not be aware that he or she is discriminating. Um, discrimination can be totally unintentional from this perspective. Um, and it may or it may not result from prejudice. Um, so the, the employer does not necessarily need to be prejudiced or to be aware that he or she is prejudiced for discrimination to occur. Um, one of the challenges in this field of research, and my own research deals with uh, labor market discrimination that happens at the stage of hiring, so during the hiring process, is that it is very difficult to establish whether or not someone is discriminating. 
Um, and this is because we often have no information on um, the, the set of applicants that the employees is choosing from. So it is very difficult from a researcher's perspective, but also from the perspective of a possible victim to know uh, whether discrimination has taken place. So if we imagine, if we think about the last time we applied for a job, um, we just went to, uh, we submitted an application, uh, we were invited to a job interview, we went to the job interview, and then we heard about the result. This result was either positive or negative, but we don't know who we were competing against. And so also from a victim perspective, it's difficult to uh, understand whether or not discrimination has taken place. And I think this is one of the main challenges in this field of research. So, so there is a, a whole set of methods that have been deployed uh, to, to actually try to, um, as, as you explained really well, try to um, differentiate between the reasons for the reasons why you didn't get a job that may be due to your social capital or your skills or, or other factors that are actually relevant for, for the job you're applying for and issues that are related to um, your ethnic background or things that are not directly relevant. So how do we, how do we sort them out? So in, in your article in the British Journal of Sociology, you highlight this whole, uh, the history also of, of studies trying to, um, to look at discrimination dating back to, to the late 60s, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. could, you, could you say a little bit about how do you actually go about, as a researcher, how do you go about concretely uh, uh, measuring this ethnic discrimination on the labor market? Yeah, so there's a, there's a bunch of different methods that can be employed. And I think here, especially within sociology, um, the, the number of methods that have been um, used is very, is very extensive. Um, so my own research very recently has focused on field experiments. And these are often considered a gold standards, both in, well, in sociology as well as in economics, um, for identifying discrimination causally um, so that... Uh, we can make sure, so basically we, we uh, try to create applicants that are as similar as possible um, and, with the, and we assume that they are perceived as identical by employers. Um, we basically try to um, standardize their CVs, their application documents, their cover letter. Uh, we make sure that they have um, the same types of skills, relevant skills, um, similar education, very comparable education and training. Um, and then uh, we just apply uh, with these fictitious applicants. Uh, we send applications to employers and then we wait for what is known to be a callback. So just any sort of response that we can get from employers. And then we track these responses across groups and we compare who has been um, invited most often. So this is a powerful method because um, it allows us to identify whether um, the, whether the characteristics that uh, we are expecting to be related to discrimination is really leading to a different treatment between the groups that we are studying. And this is because that characteristic is the only one that is varying within a pair of fictitious applicants. So this is a very powerful method that has been used um, in the last 60 years, 50, 60 years, not only um, in the UK and in the US where these methods um, were initially adopted, but also um, across European countries and even outside of Europe. So it is um, now we have a whole body of evidence on um, the discrimination that is um, facing different groups uh, in different countries. 
um, and we can compare these discrimination uh, ratios. So it's it's really, uh, um, in a way, a booming field of research within the discrimination literature. So it's a very powerful method from the point of view of identifying causal effects. And as I said, this is because we are basically comparing equal applicants um, or applicants that we uh, make equal uh, in the research design, except for the one characteristic that we expect is driving employers' behavior. So we would vary, for example, their ethnic background or their gender or their sexual orientation or their religion with some cues that are mentioned in the CV or in the cover letter, so more generally in the application. But this is also a method that comes with its own limitations, and some of the limitations are that as researchers, um, we need to sort of um, communicate um, ethnicity, for example, in a way that is not very conspicuous, so that would not make employers suspicious. And this is sometimes difficult, um, because um, the typical way in which we do this in field experiments on race or ethnicity is by using names that sound foreign. Um, but then the question is, are employers really associating a given name with a given um, country of origin, for example? Um, and also the other important question is, if minorities are really expecting to be discriminated against in the labor market, would they really stress their background in the CV? So there is some sort of um, um, manipulation of uh, characteristics of uh, job applicants that we as researchers need to do for the experiment to be valid that may or may not really reflect minorities' uh, behavior in the labor market when searching for a job. And that might be a limitation because it would affect the external validity of the results. Another limitation is that with this type of method, you can only... Um, um, you can only basically um, give a, a descriptive picture of what's happening, but um, you can say quite little about the underlying mechanism. So why are employers discriminating? There's some innovation going on in the research design of field experiments to address this, but um, I think still the main strength of field experiment is just making the case that discrimination exists and is very real. Um, a second, uh, another limitation of field experiments uh, maybe it's the third now that I think about, um, uh, is that um, we are primarily focusing on um, the job application stage. So we send applications and then we wait to be invited for an interview. And when we receive an invitation to an interview, um, very often the study is then terminated, which simply reply that we are no longer interested for the job. So we don't know what would happen had um, the candidate actually attended that job interview. So the, we know very little about what would happen next. Some studies have explored that, that stage. So basically the job offer stage, what happens after candidates go to a job interview. Um, but because it, this is a very costly um, and time-consuming uh, study to set up, um, there aren't many researchers that have done um, a complete study of the whole hiring process. So... Um, and, and one of the consequences is that we don't know whether the discrimination that we, the, 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 the discrimination rate that we can observe um, in field experiments that focus on job interviews is comparable or is an underestimate or an overestimate of what happens um, afterwards at the job offer stage. There are some recent um, American studies showing that actually discrimination even 
um, uh, increases afterwards. So the discrimination that people um, experience after attending the interview um, and when comparing um, uh, applicants that are invited to a job interview, go to the job interview, and then uh, some of them receive a job offer and some of them don't. So when we compare this, likelihood to receive a job offer conditional on attending the job interview, um, then we see that discrimination is even higher there. And this means that all that we know about discrimination based on studies that only look at the job interviews in, uh, stage, and these results are already alarming, may actually be an underestimate of the real discrimination that exists in the labor market. Um, and another limitation of these field experiments is that um, in order to do a field experiment, so very often researchers rely on uh, vacancies, uh, job openings that are advertised um, typically online in some uh, online platforms. Uh, but these, of course, are only a subsample of all jobs that are on on offer um, all job openings that are there in the labor market. And so because of this, we have a sort of limited view of the total discrimination rate um, that there is in a given society. So these are uh, my thoughts on the field experimental literature. But as I said, um, there's many other methods that can be used um, in alternative or also in combination with field experiments to have a more general overview of what's happening and whether or not employers are discriminating. And this um, range from self-reports of perceived discrimination that are different from actual discrimination, but can also give us an idea of the experiences that minorities have um, or members of uh, disadvantaged groups more in general. So do they experience discrimination? Do they um, um, think they're being discriminated against when they apply for a job? And to some extent, this, this, this gives us a bit of a different uh, perspective on the issue because um, perceived discrimination need not uh, uh, equal or um, be comparable uh, to actual discrimination. But it is also important to analyze the experiences of people because these experiences have important consequences that might affect their job search behavior, um, for example, that might lead to uh, withdrawal from the labor market if people experience a series of um, disappointments and, and their expectations are not met. So this is also another area um, of uh, work in, uh, in sociology that is, is very relevant to understand discrimination in the labor market more generally. Um, and then, of course, we can also um, uh, interview employers more directly and uh, sometimes they... Um, are also open to share their views on um, why they might prefer one group over the other. So we have a whole um, literature uh, based on interviews of employers, ethnographies, case studies of organizations. And these are also uh, very important because they can um, give us some more knowledge on the underlying mechanism. So what's happening uh, in the mind of employers um, and what, what is behind um, the decision to invite one candidate over the other. So it gives us a bit more knowledge um, on the mechanisms compared to the field experiments. Uh, hi, Valentina. Um, so uh, my sense from the research that I've read thus far is that uh, expressions of xenophobia in survey research are declining. Uh, people are less likely to uh, agree with uh, with statements that on their face are sort of discriminatory. Uh, yet uh, the research on 
uh, labor market discrimination indicates that discrimination is still alive and well. So is there a major difference between the stated opinions of people and their actual behavior, or are employers just not uh, non-representative of uh, the wider population? Yeah. So there are different processes that I think might um, explain this this discrepancy between, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, a, a decline in in uh, um, prejudice, uh, in attitudinal research, um, and at the same time, what we see in, for example, uh, meta analysis of field experiments. I have done one myself um, for the UK, where we basically. Um, uh, bring together estimates from different studies conducted in Britain um, with the field experimental methodology from uh, the 1960s, end of the 1960s until nowadays. And then we see that um, the gaps in um, the likelihood to be invited to an interview between the white British population and the uh, disadvantaged groups in, in Britain, so we focus in these studies on uh, Black Caribbeans, uh, Black Africans, as well as South Asians, are as white today as they were 50 years ago. So nothing much has changed in the past um, 50, 60 years. So we have this discrepancy of results, and this might, and which is even um, surprising because what we are comparing today are often members of second generations. So these are... Um, people who have been born and raised in Britain, who have a language fluency that is um, comparable to that of the white British population. Who ha- This is a, a group that has domestic qualifications that have been trained in Britain. So there are uh, uh, fewer reasons for them to experience discrimination. And still we find uh, no decline. And we find no decline for both the Black Caribbean's population as well as for the South Asian one. And... Yeah, how can we reconcile these different findings? Um, one possibility is that, um, indeed, um, we are looking at a different group. So basically, we are selecting on employers, um, and we are, um, on the one hand, selecting on employers in organizations with a, within, with a specific focus on especially um, administrative positions, service positions that are often advertising those online platforms that we have to rely on for this type of studies. Whereas um, the prejudice research is research done more generally on the population as a whole. So that could be one reason. The other reason could simply be that people are not aware of their biases. So they might not necessarily report to be prejudiced, but still these biases may affect their decision making uh, in organizations, in their daily decisions on who to, who to hire and who to not hire. So this is, a, this is one possibility. Um, and this is also more generally a point that um, a sort of um, uh, reveals a, 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 an interesting discussion that happens within um, sociology, but also in other disciplines, of the difference between um, discrimination that is done at the individual level by the individual actor, the individual employer that decides to discriminate, and uh, a more sort of uh, systemic look at what happens in organizations, what are the reasons why organizations that have been sort of white organizations for uh, forever, basically, um, what what make these organizations stay white? And these are not necessarily um, individual decisions make 
by prejudiced employers, but they can also be the result of more systemic practices that are in place in given organizations that even legally, in legal ways, um, uh, end up um, um, giving end up giving an advantage to a certain group over another. Um, so, for example, um, in an organization, the um, recruitment pool from which the organizations uh, sell, attract employees can already skew the applicant pool in a specific way. So, if an employer decides to um, advertise and, and, and recruit on white campuses, for example, then chances are that the applicant pool will already be skewed. Um, towards the white group. Um, and so that could be another reason why we see this discrepancy um, in, uh, uh, between attitudinal research on the one hand and what we know from, from field experiments on the other hand. I was wondering whether you could say something about the, the drivers of discrimination, because if, if, we, if, we, if we have in mind the kind of perfect market that people like Gary Becker imagine exists. If you had a perfect market, there shouldn't be discrimination because it's not in the interest of employers to, to not take the best person for the particular job because of their ethnic background. What really matters for their own, let's say, business as, as, as an economic enterprise is the quality of the applicant. So are there, what, what, might, what would be the reasons why employers might want to discriminate? You, you mentioned some subconscious uh, mechanisms, but would there be some reasons that employers might also verbalize in terms of, you know, my my customers will want somebody that looks like them, or is, is there any evidence of of this kind of of conscious uh, uh, discrimination? Yeah, um, yeah. So to to go back to the point you raised about Gary Becker's uh, theory of taste-based discrimination. So that the argument would be indeed that um, employers have a distaste for uh, specific groups. So they would willing to they would be willing to incur a cost to pay a price as long as they uh, will avoid interacting with uh, these given groups. And so in the long run, um, if markets are fully competitive, then we should see that, um, that uh, discrimina discriminatory organizations should go out of businesses then we know that markets are not really fully competitive most of the time. So there are information asymmetries, um, segregations in, in networks um, that might affect the flow of information. And so there's a bunch of reasons why um, in the long run, uh, discriminatory employers are still in the market. Um, I think in terms of um, mechanism, so what here is really one example where talking to employers can be really informative. So what we see in studies that are based on interviews with employers, um, we see that very often employers sort of rationalize their behavior in ways that are um, inconsistent. So, uh, for example, um, they tend to attribute um, the success of uh, a given um, a minority member to, to chance or luck or not even remember certain uh, successes. And here, um, contribution from psych psychologists um, have really illuminated more <laughs> the underlying mechanisms. Um, we can also see that um, very often, um, even if the uh, minority applicant can uh, really show proof of being fluent in a given language, um, of having a, um, a relevant qualification, 
the employer still find ways to create differentiations or simply does not even pay attention to this. There's an interesting um, discussion uh, on attention discrimination uh, in economics, and this is a um, uh, point where uh, yeah, economists and, and sociologists think quite similarly. So basically, employers um, might simply not pay attention to the information that is presented by a given minority applicant. So they might spend less time reading their CVs. They might uh, pay less attention to certain cues that are present in the CVs. So uh, they might simply um, read no further if they see that the applicant is from a minority background. And so this... um, it's also uh, uh, one of the reasons why we might see persistence in discriminatory behavior. Um, yeah, and as I said, um, it's also um, um, important to keep in mind that, that the employers need not be uh, aware that their decision is uh, biased. So very often uh, the discrimination that happens in labor market is completely unintentional. Um, and that's also why, um, uh, I mean, if you think of the public debate around discrimination, uh, very often this is centered um, around uh, eliminating the bad actors, so the, 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 those employers that are discriminating, um, which creates a lot of tensions and also a lot of backlash from um, the dominant groups in society because they feel directly targeted um, when, um, in, in fact, um, Discrimination might also be the result of organizations that are functioning in a completely um, legal way, um, but they might be based on structures that, um, um, consciously or not, end up giving an advantage to a specific group. And these structures could be um, the way in which the recruitment is uh, organized. It could be um, uh, organizational practices such as who to retain in the organization and who to lay off. Um, And indirectly, these um, practices might um, put certain um, members of specific groups at a disadvantage. So this type of indirect discrimination is also one mechanism that might explain the persistence of discrimination in labor markets. So one explanation that uh, I would think of as uh, explaining this type of discrimination is that uh, the context might matter. Uh, so to what extent do things like uh, uh, sectoral differences, occupational differences, or differences uh, across uh, public and private uh, organizations uh, affect uh, the prevalence of this type of labor market discrimination? Yeah, yeah, this is an important question. And I also take it as an opportunity to talk a little bit about my recent research, if I may. Uh, which is um, uh, basically uh, a, a standardized and cross-national field experiment that uh, was run in, in six countries, uh, the, including the Netherlands. So this, these countries were the Netherlands, Germany, Norway, Spain, Britain, and the US. And in this project, um, the GEM project, I collaborated with researchers from other institutions in all these countries to then field simultaneously um, a field experiment that had the same, exactly the same research design. And in this research design, we focused on different occupations and uh, different institutional context. So it was a very um, important project because um, it gave us the opportunity to directly compare rates of discrimination across um, different contexts. 
and so to test whether or not there are um, uh, structural conditions or institutions that may uh, facilitate discrimination or uh, make it less likely to occur. And this project um, was also innovative because um, compared to um, the, the large majority of field of studies where um, typically the focus is only on a limited numbers of minority groups, we really wanted to uh, compare a large number of groups. So we focus on 35 different minority groups. And so we can really compare um, how employers react to applications that come from minority groups that really vary in terms of their um, background, cultural distance to the country of destination and um, colonial past, um, history uh, of relations with um, colonial um, uh, history in relation to the country of destination and, and so on and so forth. And in this project, we also um, focus on occupations that differ on a number of characteristics that we thought were, would be relevant um, to, um, to really show um, where discrimination can be higher or lower. And in particular, we compared, um, um, we compared occupations that vary in customer contact. So um, to what extent the job requires uh, repeated interactions with customers as part of um, the daily job tasks that need to be performed, and also occupations that varied in skill level. And our um, uh, reasoning was that um, if the employer um, is discriminating because he or she does not want to interact with members of specific groups, and if this is also expected from um, the customer base, then we should see um, lower levels of discrimination in jobs that do not really involve a higher level, high level of customer contact. And with regard to skill level, we thought that there are occupations that are so specific that require um, such a, um, a high level of technical uh, expertise that employers simply cannot afford to discriminate because there might be just a few candidates that are able to do the job. And if the... Um, or there could be simply skill shortages, and so there aren't really enough candidates that apply for the position. So the only candidates available might be uh, candidates from a minority group. So we compare different occupations that vary with regard to both of these dimensions in this in this project. Um, and what we find is that yes, um, um, discrimination tends to be slightly lower in um, high skilled occupations. Uh, for which very um, yeah, uh, highly specific and technical knowledge is required. Uh, think about, for example, um, the occupation of programmers, software engineers, um, uh, IT specialists. And at the same time, we also saw that um, discrimination tend to be higher um, in uh, occupations that require um, uh, repeating interaction with customers. In particular, we have work in progress where we uh, compare applicants that applied with a headscarf or without a headscarf. Um, so we are comparing a member of a majority group uh, with no headscarf and then uh, two fictitious applicants from Muslim countries, uh, one of whom is wearing a headscarf in the application and another one is not. And then in this project, we uh, basically compare uh, the relative disadvantage um, that is experienced by the two Muslim applicants um, when applying for jobs, um, depending on the degree of customer contact that is uh, required um, in, in the job. And we find that discrimination against uh, headscarf-wearing Muslim females is especially high in those occupations that do require uh, customer interaction. 
So that that sort of is, is con- that that result is consistent with our with our expectations. Um, in our own research, we haven't really focused much on the public-private sector um, distinction, um, simply because um, it is very difficult to um, run a harmonized uh, field experiment across countries, focusing on the public sector. The public sector is differently regulated in different countries, um, and very often extensive background checks are um, conducted on applicants, and this would really expose us to the risk of being detected by employers, which is what, as a researcher doing field experiments, you're trying to avoid. So we uh, did not include any public sector uh, job in our own study. I know from the other studies that very often um, we see a higher uh, rate of discrimination in the private sector compared to the public sector. And one of the explanations that is uh, put forward is that the public sector is very often... um, a sector where there are more formalized hiring processes, more accountability, more exposure, and that um, w- could um, justify why rates of discrimination there are lower. So that's um, yeah what I can say in terms of uh, contextual differences at the level of occupations. And uh, differences across countries? Are uh, some of the countries that you've studied more likely to, or are employers in some of the countries that you've studied more likely to uh, engage in uh, discrimination and hiring decisions? Yeah, so that's also um, another one of the main research questions that we had when we started the study. Um, One thing to keep in mind is that we only analyze six countries, and so it's always difficult to really understand what is driving country differences if country differences are found. One um, result that might be surprising um, is that the rates of discrimination that were found in Europe are relatively high. Um, And especially in light of recent events where uh, we have seen a lot of protests in support of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement uh, in the US, but also in other parts of Europe, I think a large part of the public tend to believe that discrimination is especially a problem in the United States. And this is not the case. We we see in our field experiments that um, sometimes candidates have to apply 60% more times than um, uh, majority candidates um, in order to to receive um, a a similar number of invitations to a job interview. And this um, gap in, in the likelihood to be invited varies across countries and um, we see that for example is about 60 percent in the uk is around 30 percent in the netherlands but still um, these rates are comparable if not even higher than the ones that um, are found in the united states Um, so uh, we have a problem with discrimination too Um, and it's important that that this problem um, stays uh, high in the in the political debate and in the political agenda that we do something about it Um, what we um, found in the in the GEM project, and I think this is a result that is also consistent with uh, meta-analysis of other field experiments um, done by other researchers, where you basically pull together different field experiments and you compare rates of discrimination across contexts. So based on that on their results and also based on our results, where we basically simply compare rates of discrimination found in our own cross-national study. So in in both these these types of studies, we see that um, rates of discrimination tends to be lower in German-speaking countries. Um, 
And one of the possible explanations for this result is that um, uh, in German-speaking countries, often applying for a job is a job in itself um, because uh, people are required to uh, include a lot of information in their job application. So they include a copy of their certificates from, from the educational institutions. They also often include references from previous employers, and this is often required so for the application to be valid. As a result, employers in these German-speaking countries have a very large amount of information on which they can base their hiring decisions. And the availability of this information might sort of um, reduce their concerns that um, a given minority employee might not be um, the, the most qualified candidate for a job. So having more information might reduce this un their uncertainty. And so this might explain why uh, Germany and German-speaking countries more generally tend to show a lower level of discrimination. Um, another result that was pretty interesting in our own uh, GEM study was the very high level of discrimination found in Britain. And Britain um, is a, among the countries that we study um, one of the countries with a more flexible labor market. And it's also um, a country with a very well, relatively well-developed anti-discrimination policy. So if anything, we were expecting the rate of discrimination to be the lowest in Britain. And this is because when markets are flexible, uh, employers can hire and fire people very easily. So they, uh, one may expect them to be willing to take the extra risk to hire a minority applicant, because in case that this match turns out to be unsatisfactory, they can be um, they have the possibility to um, fire the employee compared to employers in other countries where this is more difficult and more costly. Um, and also the, the better developed anti-discrimination legislation led us to expect a lower level of discrimination in Britain. And instead, we found exactly the reverse. So the, the discrimination ratio, which gives us a, a measure of uh, how much more effort one group has to put in their job applications compared to the other to, be, to receive a similar number of invitations is much higher in Britain than in other countries. And um, within our uh, GEM study, um, the Netherlands and Norway are also countries that um, are scoring somewhat high in their level of discrimination. So that, that's also uh, another interesting result when it comes to um, cross-national differences. And it's very hard also for me to give a summary of all the results that we had because um, we were comparing so many different groups in different occupations in different contexts. And so there is also a lot of variation across ethnic groups in what we find. So it's, um, it's difficult to, to give you a, a short summary of all the results. Um, that's fair. Um, yeah, well, another thing that uh, may play a role in this process is um, uh, that the bargaining power of different immigrant, uh, immigrant groups might uh, might affect discrimination. If I uh, were to think about it, that immigrants from wealthier countries may potentially be less uh, less affected by uh, labor market discrimination, uh, partially because uh, they're potentially a stronger bargaining position, uh, and potentially also because the educational systems might be a closer fit or might be uh, uh, assess as being better. Uh, to what extent do those factors uh, affect hiring practices? Yeah, 
Yeah, so the factors that you mentioned are certainly relevant. And and also this question brings me to talk a bit more about differences across groups. Um, in our own uh, experiments, so in my own research, we have focused mainly on either second generation migrants who were born and raised in the country of destination. So their, their education came from the education system of the country of destination. Um, or first generation migrants that had uh, arrived in the country of destination at the age of six. So they were still trained um, uh, in the domestic education system. And so the I don't really have uh, the data that allow me to test this, um, this possible hypothesis of a difference in treatment based on the quality of the education system, because the quality is basically held constant in my design. Um, but there are a number of other characteristics that we can compare. So even if we look at these second generations within um, a given country, we clearly see a hierarchy uh, of callbacks that, uh, so that employers react more positively to um, European applicants, applicants of European descent, and white applicants more generally. And they tend to treat um, applicants from North Africa, African countries, or the Middle East as uh, the least preferred. And this brings me to another uh, important issue that um, we, we studied in the GEM project and is the one of uh, Islamophobia or anti-Muslim discrimination more generally, uh, because we see that um, the groups that are at the bottom of employers' preferences are often Muslim groups or um, applicants that maybe do not necessarily present themselves as Muslim in the application, but they come from countries where there are large majority of Muslims. So um, there is a, a, a ethnic hierarchy in employees' preferences and Muslim applicants are often at the very bottom of this hierarchy. We also see a strong white, non-white divide, stronger in some countries than in others. We are still analyzing this, um, but in general, those minorities that are <clears throat> either treated just as well as the majority group or they are discriminated less compared to other minorities, tend to be white minorities. Uh, and these are European migrants. There is also a hierarchy within um, the European uh, group in the sense that we clearly see uh, more um, a better treatment of Western European migrants compared to Eastern European migrants. And this might also um, be driven by the way in which uh, migration from Eastern European countries is often uh, portrayed in the media, um, so in a, in a very um, negative light. So this might be the driver of what we see, but it's a it's a result um, in our in our analysis. Um, and um, it's difficult to really tell whether cultural distance is the only um, is the main driver of these differences because if you take for example east asian applicants they uh, are culturally distant but at the same time they are often treated just as well as the majority group or their rate of disc the, the, the discrimination that they experience is relatively low so that in combination to the fact that um, the groups at the bottom tend to be uh, groups that are associated with muslim countries make me think that rather than simply cultural distance um, it is um, what is driving employers' um, distaste or, or reluctance, let's say, to hire members of given group is more of an uh, anti-Muslim predisposition. Um, and that we can clearly see it in our study because we have a research design that allows us to compare 
migrants that come from countries where uh, there might be both Christian or Muslim groups. So we can compare um, applicants that, for example, come from Nigeria and half of them present themselves as Christians and half of them present themselves as Muslims. And then we see a very negative treatment only for them, for those that present themselves as Muslims in the application. So that is a very strong uh, evidence of anti-Muslim discrimination from the employer's side. This is this is really important um, and really interesting to think about the ways that you've managed to disentangle, say, the net effect of specific variables by looking at, uh, say, migrants from specific contexts in which, say, race might be held constant, but religion isn't. It's almost like there's this intersectionality of different characteristics, I guess, that can that can serve as a penalty, I think is, is some of the phrasing that you've used um, in the work that I've read, which I've really appreciated. I was wondering if you could speak at all to what we can do with this insight about the intersections of different types of characteristics. So how do we handle the fact that uh, this discrimination is often done subconsciously, like you were describing, or by employers who might not be aware that they're doing it, and at the same time is perpetuated in systemic factors, like say recruitment uh, systems, as you were describing. You know, how do we start to use these insights to to tackle discrimination? Yeah, yeah. So that that's a very important question, and also very relevant for for policy, obviously. Um, I think, you know, also in light of the recent debates, um, acknowledging that discrimination is systemic, it's also built in in our own institutions, legal institutions, is an important step. So recently, um, uh, the prime minister in the Netherlands uh, want, um, expressed his sort of um, um, reluctance to use the term institutional racism, but I think... Uh, it is important to acknowledge that um, there, we, we are um, uh, working and surrounded and, and our life is structured by institutions that um, have been created and have been, have been created with whiteness as the norm. And this affects um, uh, the, dis- the distribution of resources across groups. So this is an important uh, step, I think, um, acknowledging that um, um, Discrimination is the result often of acts that are not intentional and they're not that, that go beyond the individual that is involved in, in a single employer decision in an organization. So it's much it's a much broader issue than that alone. Um, and secondly, I think we need um, to keep monitoring. So um, um, I was once presenting my work and somebody in the audience said, well, don't we already know this? So we have a long tradition of field experiments that show us that minority groups are being discriminated against. And I said, yeah, sure, we know. But it's important also to realize that this hasn't changed in like 50 years. And um, it's important to show um, what the drivers are. And and our attempt in the GEM study, for example, was to really try to get closer to them, to um, like understanding the drivers of discrimination. So is it just about ethnicity in general? There are certain groups that are especially at a disadvantage. So we need uh, data on this. And, and um, for example, um, recently the um, um, the SER, I don't know what is the English uh, um, 
equivalent socioeconomic council yeah socioeconomic council um they um introduced um they, they had this this um, advice of um, uh, encouraging companies to mm, basically track the um, composition of their organizations at all levels of the organizational hierarchy and they can now organization can now uh, collaborate with cbs and have a breakdown of their ethnic composition at different levels of um, their um, um, sort of uh, job classification so that is very important it's important to know um, to, 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 to monitor uh, the problem and we can only do that with uh, reliable data and uh, so that that's certainly very important. Um, there is, of course, a lot of um, work that needs to be done, and very often um, the, the sort of policy uh, implications that are discussed are things like diversity um, training for managers, which is certainly important, but still remains at the level of the individual actor. So we try to train individuals about their biases so that we expect them to uh, be more reflective and, and we expect that they would be better able to control their biases in the future. And this is important, but still it doesn't address the systematic nature of this problem. So we need to really think more about how our institutions work and what are organizational practices that might be um, um, totally legal and not thought off with the intention of discriminating, but that still have repercussions on minorities and, and still uh, keep them um, at a lower level and still make sure that they are denied uh, certain jobs. So we have to think more broadly than simply looking at the individual employer making a biased hiring decision. And this implies really um, taking um, um, a very uh, like thinking more carefully about what institutional racism is and how uh, it uh, occurs in every uh, aspect of life. So in my own research, I only focus on uh, the, 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 the result of a job application process. And by design, I already need to keep a lot of things constant, but these things are not constant in real life. So this ceteris paribus condition that researchers really like um, because it allows us to have a neat design is not a feature of our society. So in order to create this fictitious application, I need to give people the same type of education. But we know that there are barriers in access to education, and we know that uh, there's a, uh, a series of obstacles that members of minority groups encounter or, along the way. And these are cumulative effects. So the discrimination that I look at at the hiring stage is just the end result of all this. Um, so we have to really think more broadly about uh, all these different steps uh, that are uh, at which minorities are at a disadvantage. So, for example, in, in research, we still know relatively little about how minorities might try to bypass discrimination. So they know that discrimination exists. Um, they might have experienced it themselves. Um, and so how do they react to this? How do they try to sort of strategically uh, improve their own condition? So it's important to have a more two-sided view of this labor market process. If, if I go back to, to um, what you said about there being lower levels of discrimination in German-speaking countries that usually require more information from applicants. Um, would this be a way to address that in some way in other countries where 
if we consider that ethnic discrimination relies on on stereotypes and and um, and and um, and mindsets that rely on 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 lower levels of information about applicants. So the lower level of information you provide, the more it leaves room for these stereotypes to actually shape hiring practices. So would requiring more information like German-speaking countries do, would this be a way to actually reduce the room for these uh, ethnic stereotypes to actually play a role in hiring practices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think this is a very like reasonable proposal that we could make or it's a hypothesis in the end that we, we should test um, because it is true that um, uh, German-speaking countries see have a lower level of discrimination and one of the characteristics that they have is that um, uh, the amount of information is, is higher. Um, but at the same time, this is not the only characteristic that vary. So as always, it's, it's very difficult to understand what type of institution is really driving cross-national differences. But in light of what we um, see in the in the gen experiment as well as in meta-analysis, um, this is certainly something worth pursuing. So maybe even testing um, with pilots um, what happens if more information are required uh, at the application stage. Of course, um, that there is going to be more formalization and this also uh, possibly increases the, the effort that the individual employer has to uh, put in the um, evaluation of an application, but that might be um, the cost of trying the cost that we should incur uh, in order to have a more equal um, uh, outcome. So we, we don't know, but I think in light of the results from this field of research, this is certainly uh, a reasonable policy proposal that could be put forward. Um, something else that has been analyzed um, and also piloted in, in different countries is the, the, the the, the use of uh, anonymous applications. So basically, with anonymous application, we simply blank out the uh, uh, the, the the background of an employee and a job applicant, so that the employer doesn't even know uh, where this applicant comes from. But then the results from this type of research and also from the pilots that have been conducted in various countries is not really consistent. So we do find sometimes a reduction in discrimination, sometimes we find no change, and sometimes we find even an increase in discrimination, which seems counterintuitive, but there might be reasons why this happens. So for example, um, there might be other characteristics in the CV that still give away what the background of a certain applicant is. So for example, participation in certain extracurricular activities or the fact of living in a very um, segregated neighborhood. These are all characteristics that might still give away what the real background of an applicant is. And that might explain why we don't really see uh, an effect of this type of policy proposals. Um, another um, issue might be that, um, you know, if you um, cannot see the background of the applicant, you also um, might be comparing um, the CVs of two people. Um, and you can't, as an employer, uh, make this type of reasoning. Uh, that is, yeah, this applicant is from a minority, but still uh, given the sort of uh, the disadvantage that he or she usually faces, um, was still able to get a reasonable um, uh, education and as a good um, uh, career track. So this sort of compensatory um, reasoning from the employer is also uh, prevented. And so in combination with the fact that some employers um, might uh, discriminate based on other cues, 
that are present in the CV. So the two together might lead to the unexpected finding that we actually see an increase in discrimination or no change when anonymous applications are used. So given the inconsistency of findings with regard to this type of policy, maybe um, requiring more information at the job application stage is a reasonable proposal. What I would add is not just um, requiring more information, but actually um, requiring information in a standardized format. Because what we also see from existing research is that minorities uh, also present themselves differently to the employers. And this might be because um, they are less familiar with um, specific informal codes on um, how to uh, present yourself in a job application, um, especially if these minorities are new to a given context. So uh, standardizing the way in which application is presented might actually go a long way in um, equalizing the, the, the chances between different groups. So I have a question about that, because isn't there a risk that providing more information or, or standardizing the types of information that need to be provided against the backdrop that you described of different access to specific opportunities, whether it be educational or, say, extracurricular, would that not run the risk of actually amplifying the effect of different access to those opportunities. So for example, if an employer were to sort of uh, across the board ask for um, a specific internship information or more information about internships that applicants didn't have as much access to, wouldn't that then just further reveal the, the inequality of opportunity? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a good point. Um, but I think my um, what I meant is more, um, I mean, not just to um, increase information um, in a um, in a general way, but also requiring um, specific um, documents. So, for example, it's not just uh, tell me more about yourself. The approach that they have in the German country countries, but it is. Um, please apply with a, a proof of your uh, education. And this is a, a certified proof that comes from the education system. It's a copy of your certificate. So it's, it's um, not just more information, but it's information that comes from a, a trustworthy source um, that uh, can sort of um, uh, certify your knowledge. And this should reduce employers' um, biases and employers' uncertainties. Um, and also, uh, my point on the on the standardization of application forms would be to really make sure that all applicants are given um, a similar template with a similar set of questions, so that they, um, of course, there might be variation across individuals in how they fill in these sections of the application form, but at least um, they are all uh, asked the same type of questions. It's a bit basically um, a similar mechanism, a similar process of what happens with structured interviews, which are known to be a, a less discriminatory method of interviewing candidates rather than simply um, uh, relying on gut feelings and letting the, the conversation go with the flow. So it's a similar process, but then anticipated at the level of the job application. Then again, um, um, these are just, uh, um, in a way, speculations or like... Um, or um, hypothesis that one could draw based on the evidence from different studies, but we still need to uh, to put them to the empirical test. And 
one issue is um, that if we simply compare across countries, there are just too many other factors that are also varying. So the, the best way would be to conduct pilots within countries and see what happens in, with um, and in the absence of standardized applications. Right. Okay. That makes sense. In general, I, I really appreciate the emphasis that you're placing on sort of the evidence-based nature of the intervention. So making sure that the measure is in, in keeping with what, what research shows really seems to be driving how employers are, are acting. I was wondering if this leaves scope for other types of research. So we discussed in the beginning the importance uh, of these types of field experiments for being able to address or or identify discrimination. And we also discussed where you articulated really clearly the limitations. Is there scope for kind of research that further interrogates the drivers of, uh, say, systemic discrimination or also at the employer level? And if so, what kinds of what kinds of things do you think would be important complements uh, to the very important work that, that you're doing? Yeah, so I think that um, um, sort of a new trend within this research field is to integrate different methods of analysis. So um, field experiments are a good um, starting point to have a descriptive picture of where employers discriminate and how strong this discrimination is. But then they could even deliver a stronger type of evidence if they are combined with interviews with employers or if they are combined with surveys of the same organizations or um, if they are combined with, for example, um, uh, implicit association tests that are uh, done with managers to see um, uh, whether there is a correspondence between their own implicit bias with um, how they behave in practice um, or interviews with employers um, that um, allow us to really follow their thinking and their rationalization behind certain decisions. And there are some important works being done uh, by several scholars in US and Europe um, that try to do this. The issue is always that employers are a very difficult to reach population and um, it's very hard to convince them to take part in, in interviews or in surveys. Um, with field experiments, the problem doesn't present itself because employers are, do not even know that they are being targeted. So we just send them a fictitious applications and then we wait for their callback. So that takes away the problem of um, employers' uh, willingness to cooperate in the research. But then the second step, so involving them in, in interviews or involving them in, uh, in surveys is much more complicated. Um, another thing that can be done, and this is a work in progress I'm doing with um, other scholars, is um, to combine the evidence that we get from field experiments with the evidence that we get from uh, general surveys of uh, employees. So um, rather than looking at employers, trying, only employers try to combine the two sides of the labor market. And in this work, we take basically uh, the um, discrimination ratios uh, that we obtain from the field experiments as some sort of counterfactual. So it's the hypothetical um, discrimination that em uh, empl employees or job applicants would face in case they were comparable. So um, in case all their education was similar and they had um, similar characteristics on all aspects that are relevant to productivity and so on. And in case they had the same job search behavior, so both of them apply to the employer in the same way. 
So this is a hypothetical sort of a counterfactual scenario that we then compare with what we see in surveys of employees. Um, so what are the ethnic penalties? This is how these gaps are called in the literature. So what are the gaps in uh, uh, employment outcomes between uh, members of different groups? Um, in the um, uh, and, and these gaps from surveys, um, to some extent, they capture discrimination, but to some extent, they also capture other differences between the two groups. These are either differences in uh, motivation, perseverance, how they come across in job interviews, for example, but also in job search behavior. Um, how much effort do they put in finding in finding a job, in applying? How do they present themselves to the employer um, in, a, in a CV and so on and so forth? So by comparing the two, we can sort of um, disentangle the part that is due to discrimination because that we have from the field experiments and try to see what is left. And in a second step, we can then compare to what extent this residual of what is left varies across groups. And what we see in the UK is that there are certain groups, and particularly the uh, Chinese and Indian groups, that, try, that bypass discrimination. So based on the field experiment, we would expect them to find a much higher discrimination, a much higher disadvantage than the disadvantages we can see from surveys of their employment outcomes. And this means that in one way or another, they can bypass this discrimination that they would otherwise face. Whereas other groups like uh, Black Africans and Black Caribbeans um, are stuck. So they, they um, uh, in the field experience, they have a hypothetical level of discrimination that is just as high as the one that we really see in existing surveys, meaning that they have no way to bypass this discrimination. And our interpretation is that certain groups can better um, exploit resources that come from their own community. Um, and these resources, these co-ethnic community resources might be an important, um, an important um, uh, source of information flows, um, uh, an important channel of, of information flows over uh, job opportunities. But this is really an area of research that still needs to develop much further. So the fact of how we, can we combine uh, evidence from the demand side with evidence from the supply side? And this is our first attempt to do this. But yeah, uh, that's certainly much more that needs to be done. I was just thinking what would be really helpful about having, say, triangulated field experiments with interviews, for example, would be if those interviews could help dislodge the kind of informal codes that you were discussing before that are really privileged and then to then i mean this is i imagine outside the scope of your your research but to sort of try to disseminate these codes better so kind of just like radically democratizing access to say the kinds of social capital that are rewarded in the labor market does that does that seem to kind of track with what you're finding in terms of systemic discrimination yeah, I mean, this is a, an important point you're making. And um, what we see, not just in the study of, of race, uh, racial discrimination, ethnic discrimination, but also in the study of class-based discrimination, is that um, there's this employers can't really put their finger on what matters during the hiring process. And very often they refer to very vague notions of fit, cultural fit with the organization. And this cultural fit is very um, difficult to define so employers themselves can't really tell um, what, what is it that they mean and how they assess it. 
And very often they use proxies for cultural fit, right? The type of um, extracurriculars that people have done in the past uh, that can give them a signal of how well they would be able to interact in the future with the employer or within the organization. But then if these organizations are predominantly white um, and often um, they are um, uh, populated by uh, white males, then the type of um, uh, extracurriculars that help to fit in in this organization are also extracurriculars that are not really uh, done uh, by, uh, they're not really uh, take, um, followed by members of minority groups. So um, to some extent, yeah, maybe it would be helpful to really um, be more transparent about what this cultural fit really means, but it's very difficult to, to uh, measure and to define it. And also there is a more uh, important problem of differential access to the type of activities that are considered as markers of this fit. Um, one could also um, think about democratizing access to, this, um, to these opportunities, to these, for example, extracurriculars. But um, we see in research that dominant groups will try to find other ways um, to, to um, hoard resources and to maintain closure. So I'm not sure that this would be ultimately uh, the, the solution. And there is the additional issue that uh, as a member of a minority group, you would need to enter and fit in uh, into institutions that are um, um, and in, in into, into groups that are uh, skewed towards a, a, another group. So you might also feel excluded and, and have um, a sense of distress and not really um, fit, fit in very, very, very well or not feel uh, welcome. So there is also a sort of psych uh, psychological stress um, that is involved and uh, that minority, minorities might uh, um, not be willing to, to or, or, or um, might not be willing to, to uh, uh, put themselves through. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question. I maybe have one last question, and, and it relates to, to what you said about the role of class and, and also of cultural codes. So what is a bit in the background of this question is, is uh, the research by uh, Sam Friedman and, and Daniel Larison on the class ceiling, which mm -hmm. there are a number of issues that, that really intersect with your research on ethnic discrimination. And, and what seemed to me to come out of, of, of their research, and also what I felt a little bit in, in some of, of what you said, is that the more informality there, there are, and, and to be very frank, the more bullshit they are, <laughs> there is in an organization, the more it leaves room for, 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 for the privilege of the, of, the, of, the, of the dominant ethnic group. So what, is, what they showed, for instance, is that there's a lot of discrimination going on in television, where the main goal of television is, is where recruitment is based on the sharing a certain set of cultural codes that are uh, inherent to a particular upper white native class, whereas in areas such as finance, where what really matters is performance and how much money you can actually get for your hedge fund, there's a lot less discrimination. So could it be something that, that, that we could draw as a general conclusion that the role of the, the, more, the more informality and the less there is a focus on pure performance, the more there is room for that kind of discrimination? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, their work is, is very interesting. And indeed, I think um, the point about informality and bullshit as well um, 
is really is really important. Um, it it goes. I mean, it it relates a bit with what I was saying about standardization and the importance of formalized uh, hiring procedures, because in a way, um, with that sort of um, organizational practices, you try to um, give, to, you try to um, standardize as much as possible and create a template within which um, applicants um, can present themselves in similar ways to the employer. So uh, more formalization, reducing informality is certainly something that could help. Um, and it also, um, I, mean, I mean, even the, the results that we had from the, from the GEM study where discrimination was the lowest um, in uh, jobs for software engineers and programmers. I mean, these are very technical jobs for which maybe cultural fit is less relevant whereas discrimination was higher in the, all those job, uh, jobs that required a lot of customer interaction, where maybe fitting in culturally becomes more relevant. So I think our um, uh, studies really um, point towards the same direction of really um, um, informality being um, a, a, some sort of um, yeah, a, a tool through which social closure is maintained. And this social closure could, could be a social closure based on class or based on race, gender or any other productive any other characteristic that might um, uh, lead to an unequal distribution of resources between groups. Okay, Valentina, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Uh, that was very nice. <laughs>